Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis 37, 1 to 36. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornated robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, 
he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brother pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has, de has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to have you with us, and it's wonderful to be here with God's Word open in front of us. Do keep it that way. It's on page 41 of the Pew Bibles, if you just close the Bibles. And on the back of our service sheets, there's a little outline of where we're going in the next few moments. You might find that helpful to have the hand as well. Let me pray for us as we look at God's Word together. Father, we confess that so often we are baffled by life in this world. And so we thank you that you have spoken a word to us to show us what you are doing and to help us to trust you. And so please this morning be at work to that end in our hearts. Make us a people of, of trust and confidence in your good plans and purposes for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we were reminded of the brokenness of this world as we heard about the, the brutal bombings in Sri Lanka. Over 250 people murdered. Of course, the month before, there were 49 people who were shot dead in two mosques in Christchurch in New Zealand. We, we live in a broken world. But that, that brokenness isn't just in far-off countries, it's also closer to home. Think of Lyra McKee, the journalist in Northern Ireland, shot dead last week amid ongoing tensions there. And there are also ongoing tensions closer to home. Think of what Brexit has revealed in our nation. There are deep and ugly divides across the country on, on key matters. And we, we live in a broken world. But even closer to home, there is brokenness behind the smiles and good mornings of a, of a Sunday as we gather. There'll be some here this morning, perhaps, who are feeling um, broken through a strained relationship. Maybe it's marriage difficulties, trouble with the children. There may be others here who are living under the burden of disappointment. Life is just not turning out the way you thought it would. Life feels hard. The world is broken. But push it one step further, that there is brokenness inside as well. I look at my own life and my own heart, and at times I despair that there are 
habits and decisions and priorities that are out of line with my own goals, let alone God's plan for me. And I'm sure I'm not alone in being in despair at the brokenness we discover inside of us. And as we are confronted with a broken world, every single human being at some point will be faced with this question. Is God really up to the task? If we believe that there is a God who is personally involved in this world, is he really up to the task of fixing this broken world, the brokenness out there, but also the brokenness in here? And even if this morning we say, yes, we think he is, there's that nagging thought that he doesn't seem to be very good at it. Over the next few months, we are going to look at one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Joseph, the favorite son, the dreamer who was betrayed by his brothers and yet then became the prime minister of Egypt and went on to save the world and his family in a famine. It's more, though, than just a wonderful rags-to-riches story. This story is here in the Bible to help persuade and convince us that God is very much up to the task of fixing, yes, this broken family, but more than that, this broken world. This morning, we meet the family at the center of the story, and straight away, there is a surprise. Just glance down with me at verse 2 of chapter 37. Here is the chapter heading, and it says, this is the account of Jacob, Many people think this story is all about Joseph, but it's not. It's actually about Jacob and his family. And and that matters because Jacob's granddad was Abraham. And before Abraham, this world was broken because of sin and was filled with the curse that came from sin. And then God said to Abraham, I will undo the curse and bring blessing to this world and it will come through you and your family. And the camera now pans around to Jacob and lands on him. And and the question is, how will God work out his plan to bless a cursed world through this man and his family? I'm a big uh, fan of Star Wars. I'm sorry if you're not, but uh, I love the the films. Uh, The most recent films, there's a little droid called BB-8. There's a picture of the droid there behind me. Uh, He is in so many ways unimpressive. He's small, he has no arms or legs, Uh, he has no special powers, he can't speak, Uh, he's easily broken, and yet, at one point in the story, this little droid holds the key to whether evil or good will win. He's given a a map that holds that key, and as we watch the storyline, the universe hangs by a thread, will evil or good win, and it all depends on what happens to this little joy, BB-8. It's a wonderful story, I think. <laughs> but back in the real world, something similar is going on with this family. In so many ways, they look like an unremarkable family, and yet the future of this world will either be filled with cursing and death, or it'll be filled with blessing and life, and it all hangs on what happens to this family. And so come, meet the family. 
And first we see the hidden depths of sin. On the surface, the the family looks normal. There are parents, there's a place to live, they've got livestock, they have enough money to buy some nice clothes. But drill down beneath the surface and very quickly problems appear. In verse one, we are reminded that this family is a, it's a five parent family. There's dad and then there's, there's four mums, which is never a recipe for easy family dynamics. But then drill down a bit further and we see the father, Jacob. He has 12 sons, but look at verse three. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Now, look, when a, when a parent publicly shows favoritism to a particular child within a family, it's never going to help dynamics, but in the context of this particular family, it's dynamite. Look at verse four. When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So the father, he's showing favoritism to one son and it's destroying the family. But then what about the brothers? Well, twice we're told that they hate Joseph. Verse 11, they are jealous of him because of these dreams of the future. And then later on, verse 19, they consider murdering him. And then in verse 27, they only relent from that plan, at least in part, because they realize that they can actually make some money out of selling him as a slave to some merchants from Midian. And the final scene is probably the most upsetting of all. The brothers bring Jacob's robe back to dad covered in animal blood. He doesn't know it's animal blood. And he sees the robe. He's absolutely devastated. And in verse 34, he's, he's weeping and weeping. He, he will go down to his grave unconsoled. He seems to ignore that he still has 11 healthy sons around him. And at the same time, those 11 sons who have secretly plotted against his dad know the true explanation. And yet they gather around and, and, and comfort him in his grief knowing it's all a lie. And it's, it's wretched. Sociologists tell us that this world is becoming a better place. If we just have better education, better understanding, then we'll see improvements. And you can imagine the experts saying to this family, look, what you really need is a day out paintballing. Maybe go and build a raft together. Maybe a couple of sessions with a counselor and some of these awkwardnesses can be kind of worked through and you'll move on and it'll all be happy families. But remember the very first family in the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter four, that didn't end very well either. There was jealousy at work amongst the boys which led to more than just anger but the first murder in the Bible Cain and Abel. And those same kinds of family attitudes are alive and well many centuries later here in Jacob's family. No one's murdered, but you can see the hatred and anger. It almost happens. And there is jealousy, there's favoritism. And what Genesis is showing us is what the Bible says again and again 
is that when sin first entered the world in Genesis 3, it has been alive and well through every generation since. And rather than this world becoming a better place, it remains a world in the grip of sin. And many years later, it's true of us here today. I've had the privilege of speaking on this story a number of times in different contexts over the years. I've been amazed how many times people have come up to me afterwards and said, behind the presentable picture we show of church, my family is also broken. I think of one lady who hasn't spoken to her sister for years. She's never met her nieces and nephews. Think of another another man who came to me in tears because he hasn't spoken to his parents for years because of a terrible falling out he'd had with, with his siblings. And whether we are victims of that kind of sin or or we are the propagators, the same kind of dynamics that are at work in this first family here, um, Jacob's family, remain alive and well in our world today. It would be easy to to moralize from this story and say, look, we we must be better parents, more even-handed, or we must nip jealousy in the bud. That but that would miss the point of what we were learning here in Genesis 37. And I say that because there's one more level we need to drill down into to understand the root of the problem. And that takes us to the dreams. You can imagine that the family sitting down for breakfast one morning and over the cornflakes, little Joseph pipes up, verse six. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. It's not a hard dream to interpret that the brothers get it straight away and they are enraged. In that culture, it would be unthinkable for the youngest to be the leader of the family. The whole thing happens again with a second dream bringing further rage And then notice what finally triggers the brother's desperate plan to murder their brother. Glance forward to verse 19. The brothers say to themselves, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say, that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. Now look, I, I guess there's part of us that has uh, some sympathy for these brothers. Uh, many reckon that Joseph sounds like a spoiled brat with these dreams that he's broadcasting around. But actually, I don't think Joseph does much, if anything, wrong at all in this chapter. And I say that because consistently through Genesis, when people receive dreams, it is God speaking to them. He doesn't promise to speak to us now through dreams. We have his, have his word, the Bible, uh, to help us. But back then, they didn't have the Bible. Um, Abraham, Jacob, before Joseph, they received dreams from God. And later on, we'll see Pharaoh also receiving a dream from God. And here, as we read through Genesis, these dreams, this is God speaking to the family over the breakfast table about what will happen in the future. 
And it is this plan, this dream, that pushes the brothers over the edge. They, they simply cannot accept that God's future for them is that their kid brother Joseph will be the leader of the family. They do not want their future to play out that way. And what we are seeing here is a pattern that gets repeated again and again throughout the Bible. Again and again, God establishes a leader over his people. And again and again, the people rebel and push back against God and his chosen leader. We see it as um, God gives his people a king and they reject the king. We see it with the prophets who come on behalf of God and speak God's word and the people reject the prophets. And we see it most fully when God sent his own beloved son, the Lord Jesus. And when he came into this world, um, his people rejected him. They mocked him. They claimed that he was a liar and they crucified him for saying the truth about who he really was, the Christ, God's universal king, because they simply did not want their future to be a future where God's king rules over them. And today, the same thing happens. When we speak about Jesus to our friends and colleagues and neighbors, and when we say to them that Jesus is God's king who rules over the world, there, there is pushback People don't want the world to be like that. You see, the world around us, including ourselves, we're busy dreaming dreams about our lives and how we think the future will pan out. And when we have the dream, we see ourselves sat on the throne of our lives. We make the calls. But when God gives his dream for the future, it involves his man ruling over his people. And here, I think, is the, the heart of a sinful response to God. Uh, yes, we see manifestations in the form of jealousy and favoritism and anger and murder. But behind that, I think, is a heart that will not let God rule us through his chosen man. So here is the family Here we see the hidden depths of sin at work in them and in this broken world. It was at work then, it goes on being at work today. Is God up to the task of fixing this broken family and our broken world? And that takes us to our second point, the hidden hand of God. God's name is mentioned over 400 times in the book of Genesis but not once in this chapter. He, he does seem to be utterly absent. Imagine what Joseph must have been thinking as the story progresses. God has given him this dream of his future. In fact, he gives a second dream to underline this will happen. And then the brothers strip him naked and chuck him in a cistern and then sell him as a slave into Egypt. What must he have been thinking about the worth of God's promises at that point? Where is God in this story? It's not an academic question. I imagine there'll be people here today in the middle of your own stories and you look at the details and circumstances and as best you can, you you search and search and you see no discernible evidence of God's hand at work at all. 
And we are bound to ask the question, well, where is God? But in Genesis 37, God is not absent. For as mysterious and as agonizing as these events are, God's hidden hand is at work. Just think about it. Jacob just happens to send his favorite son out to find the other brothers as they look after the flock. The brothers just happen to leave Shechem to go to Dothan, which is a much more remote place, so that when the events follow on as they do, no one will see what's happening. Joseph just happens to find a guy in a field who just happens to have heard the brothers talking about their plans to go to Dothan. Reuben just happens to be able to convince the brothers not to kill Joseph, but then Reuben just happens to be out, I don't know, buying lunch when the other brothers just happened to see a load of midnight merchants who just happened to be going to Egypt, who just happened to be up for a quick purchase of a slave. And so verse 36, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guards. If any one of those steps in the story did not play out exactly as they did, then everyone dies. And I say that because, as you probably know, in Egypt, God will promote Joseph from slave to prime minister and position him at just the right point in time to provide grain for Egypt and the world during a famine and also then, therefore, to rescue his family as well. And so the careful reader will discern through this story that God is not absent. And that's uh, one of our first big implications, three implications for us. God's hiddenness does not mean absence. There are times when we look at our lives and we see God's hand at work. I, I can think of um, when we were looking for a place to go to school. We, we had just moved from the States and my parents weren't sure where we'd be living for a while and um, it's a long and complex story but we all had places had a great school provided for us and the, the details were complicated the, the, the nuances were kind of interesting and we were praying about it and the Lord gave us a wonderful door that opened and we had great time at that school and if we went around the room this morning I, I imagine we hear lots of stories where we've been praying for something and it just seems so obvious that God has been at work for good to open up a door we see his hands at work and when we see those kind of moments in life it's easy to think well God is with us when we pray he does hear us But life is not always like that. A friend of mine was diagnosed with inoperable cancer a few years ago. He's been going through some really intensive treatments, and, and for a while it looked like that treatment was, was working. The, the tumor sh- shrank a bit. His health was good. But then just before Easter, he texted me to say that he'd been for a, a recent scan and the tumor suddenly just mushroomed. And now the future looks very dark indeed. People have been praying for him. And when life is like that, 
it's very hard to see God's hand at work. He feels hidden in the details. And the next thought then is, is God really involved at all? I guess there'll be moments for each of us here this morning when we, we simply cannot see God's hidden hand. It feels like he's abandoned us. We, we pray and we see no answers. We cry out and the heavens feel like bronze. But verse 36, Joseph has made it to Egypt and God's plan to bless the world is well underway. God's hiddenness does not mean absence. Uh, William Cooper, who himself uh, struggled terribly with depression, a famous hymn, put it this way. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Next, God's methods can often be baffling. Growing up, my school owned a house up in the highlands of Scotland. It was a, a great base to go for school trips, to go walking in the mountains. And on one of my first trips there, we climbed the highest peak in the area. And look, I'll not lie, I wasn't the fittest lad growing up. And um, I was absolutely exhausted by the time we got to the top. It had been raining on the way up. I was soaked. I had blisters in my, on my feet. My muscles were aching. But as we got to the top of the mountain and we looked down into the valley below us, we could see the schoolhouse there in the valley. It was almost just right below us. And my heart lifted because actually it was just downhill all the way. I thought I I could make it just a straight shot down. But then my teacher, Mr. Fenton, he was a, a doer kind of character. I'm not sure if it's because he taught Latin or because he was Scottish. But either way, he didn't say much. He just said we can't go that way. We're going this way. And then we went on a huge extra long trek for miles and miles through all kinds of trails and forests back down again. And by the time we got home, it was dark. And I was absolutely fed up with the whole day and with my teacher, Mr. Fenton. The next morning when the sun was up again, he took me outside and he stood me in front of the house and pointed up to the mountain we'd just been on. And he said, that's where we were. And then looked down beneath on the route you wanted to come down on, and he showed me what was basically a vertical cliff. And he said to me in his doer Scots accent, I won't do it now, (laughs) he said, that's called winter quarry, and every year people die in that quarry. And then he walked away. As I said, he was a doer teacher, but there we are. You see, it wasn't until the the next day, in the light of a new dawn, I was able to look up and see that my way would have led to disaster. Joseph, why did God choose this path for him? Why have a famine at all? Why did Egypt have to be the source of provision of grain? Why couldn't God have just sent an angel to the family to say, come on, sort it out. I'm going to sit here until you do. It would have been much easier. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see some utterly profound answers to those questions. God is going to fix this broken family. 
He has just the right plan, the, the, the route for them through brokenness to blessing. But none of this is obvious yet in Genesis 37. It'll now take 20 years before Joseph sees his brothers again. 20 years. I'm very aware that for some of us here this morning, we are right in the middle of a story of suffering. And no matter how hard we look for good implications that might come out of it, we cannot see any. Joseph shows us that it's not unusual to be baffled by God's methods. But a day is coming, and it might not be until the first morning in our eternal home when the Lord will take us outside, if you like, and he will, he will show us the route he did choose for us and why it was just the right route for us from brokenness to blessing. Andrew Peterson is a, a Christian singer, songwriter, and in one of his songs, he tries to imagine what it'll be like that first moment when we wake up and realize we have made it into the new creation. And in that song, one of his lines goes like this. I, I had a dream that I was waking on the burning edge of dawn. I could finally believe the king had loved me all along. What a moment that will be. But for now, God's plans are often baffling. Finally, God's plans cannot be thwarted. The brothers said, let's kill that dreamer. And in doing so, they played a crucial role in making those dreams come true. And one of the striking things about the story of Joseph that we'll see throughout this series is that it's not just that God is able to circumnavigate sin to make good things happen. It's actually more than that. He, he uses the very sin and wickedness of this broken world. He uses those actions to achieve his good plans for his people. I'm not saying that God is the author of sin or wickedness, not at all. But I am saying that he uses the sin and brokenness of this world to achieve his blessings for his people. I love the way that the story of Joseph is pregnant with rumors and teasers of a greater rescue to come. Many centuries later, there was another man who was hated by his brothers. He was betrayed, sold into captivity for a few pieces of silver, and then stripped of his clothes. But unlike Joseph, this other man was, was actually killed. And he was killed to secure the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life for those who trust in him. I am, of course, talking about Jesus. And in the New Testament, in Acts chapter two, Peter explains to the Jews what happened to Jesus. Here's the verse behind me. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead. 
God's plans, God's gospel plans cannot be thwarted. And even at the cross, as we see wicked men seeming to prevail, actually it was God who was working out his plans all along, raising his son to eternal life. God's plans, they may be hidden at times. They, they may leave us feeling baffled, but, but, but nothing can stop them. And so I think God would ask each one of us this morning, in whatever context we are in, will you trust me with your life? We've just begun to dabble into this story. I hope you'll come back over the next few weeks. I hope you'll see again and again why God is more than up to the task of fixing this broken world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the reality of this story this morning, which is what this world is like. We thank you that your word doesn't duck away from truth. And Father, we also confess this morning that we find this world hard. We find the brokenness that we live in overwhelming at times. Father, please help us to be a people who trust that you are able to bring about your good plans for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.